Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 19 of my book entitled Ultima Thule Unraveling the Unknown. This will be the first of two episodes dedicated to chapter 12 of my book, which is called The Faith, Facts, and Pseudoscience of Meteorites. In the last chapter, we talked about the different types of meteorites, but one aspect that I was drawn to about meteorites is wondering what ancient people thought when they saw or encountered a meteorite. Not just seeing a flame shoot through the sky, but what if they actually were able to trace it down and found that a rock, something by all accounts is heavier than air, was what actually came down through the sky. What would they have thought, and how would they have tried to process what they experienced? In this chapter, we're going to explore what information we have on how deeply meteorites have penetrated the psyche of ancient humans. If the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets can leave such an impact on us to create mythologies around them, then what about meteorites? We're going to explore religious connections to meteorites throughout history over this episode and the next. What makes these episodes particularly fun for me is that they intersect with different aspects discussed all over this book. I don't only make connections with the types of meteorites from the last chapter, but also to the L3 haplogroup people who left Africa from chapter 7, the Green Sahara people discussed in chapter 1, Thales of Miletus in chapter 2, different mythological beliefs that were discussed in chapter 3, and the different pole stars that were discussed in chapter 4. This is why I waited to discuss one of my favorite Egyptian cities and its connection to the heavens until today, the city of Heliopolis. But as we prepare for our journey into ancient beliefs and worship of meteorites, I have to say a word of caution about speculation, which is something I'm going to be doing a lot of over the next couple of episodes. It just so happens to be that the realm of ancient meteorite worship is rife with speculation and pseudoscience, so being able to parse out what's real and what isn't was a daunting task for me. There is an allure to wanting speculation or pseudoscience to be the truth, so weaved into the next couple of episodes are lessons related to speculation and pseudoscience, particularly in the next episode. And I hope that these stories are going to help hone and refine where, when, and how speculation is welcome versus where it doesn't belong. So before I get into this episode, I always like to acknowledge valuable resources, and in this one, I want to give a shout out to the beautiful documentary on meteorites done in 2020 by Werner Herzog called Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds, which I repeatedly reference in this chapter, and I highly recommend that you watch. 
So with that as our introduction, if you've been enjoying this series, please like, rate, or review, tell a friend to help get the word out there. Also, if you're feeling generous, you can donate. That will give you a PDF copy of my book, which has all sorts of images, and you don't have to wait for future episodes to come out to know how this book ends. You can follow me at no character limit at mastodon.world. And finally, you can always reach out to me at no character limit at protonmail.com. So let's hear the first half of chapter 12 The Faith, Facts, and Pseudoscience of Meteorites. Chapter 12, The Faith, Facts, and Pseudoscience of Meteorites. Part 1, Meteoritic Faith, Touching the Heavens. No matter if they're chondrites, achondrites, or iron, all meteorites leave a deep impact on the human psyche. The famous filmmaker Werner Herzog captured this in his 2020 documentary entitled Fireball Visitors from Darker Worlds, where he follows mankind's fascination with space rock all over the globe, from the ice sheets of Antarctica to Meteor Crater in Arizona. Another location Herzog makes it to is Lonar Lake in India, where a meteor left a hole of similar size and around the same time as Meteor Crater in Arizona. While the Meteor Crater impact occurred approximately 49,000 years ago, the impact that created Lonar Lake occurred just a few thousand years prior, about 52,000 years ago. Both had similar devastating effects and was occurring when the L3 humans were first leaving Africa. My own pet theory is that the pre-L3 humans who lived at sites like Jualapuram and Daba may have met their end from this meteor strike and finally allowed L3 humans to push east. Just as the strike at Canyon Diablo would have made a destructive end to most things within a thousand mile radius, Jualapuram is only 400 miles away and Daba is just about 500 miles away, leaving both of them vulnerable to the aftermath of such a massive blast. These pre-L3 settlements may have been thoroughly weakened by the Lonar impact, whereas before this time, any wandering L3 humans may have met their end there. The L3 humans, likely being based out of the Middle East, would have been able to overcome their pre-L3 Indian neighbors and overrun them after the impact. However, I say all of this without knowing enough specifics of when the last remnants of either site were found. What is known is that the Lonar Lake impact left a strange and enigmatic effect on the environment that is still not fully understood to this day. While Meteor Crater in Arizona is nearly perfectly preserved in a dry desert landscape, the 
Lonar Lake impact hit the southern tropical forests of India, which has since filled up with water and created the nearly circular lake that still exists today. Science articles continue to marvel about the meteoritic lake's ability to change colors from turquoise to pink, and that it's one of the only lakes in the world that is both alkaline and saline at the same time. The lake has a totally unique microbiome and has an unusual effect on compasses, which further shrouds the lake in mystery. An alien-looking lake defying scientific understanding into the 21st century is exactly the sort of cosmic conundrum that draws inquisitive minds. While there are still many questions to be answered about what made the Lonar Lake impact so unique, it appears the sheer speed of this meteor hitting the Earth is part of the reason for its unusual nature. While the typical meteorite hits the Earth between 25,000 and 160,000 miles per hour, it's estimated that the meteorite that created Lonar Lake came shrieking through the atmosphere at speeds nearing 600,000 miles per hour, striking the Earth so hard it turned the ground to glass. The bizarre aura of Lonar Lake must have been apparent for millennia, as over a thousand years ago, ancient Temples were constructed along the lake that have since been abandoned. These ancient temples were aptly dedicated to Shiva, the god of destruction, which only adds to the allure of this unusual place. It would have been impossible for people only a thousand years ago to know that this lake was the result of an impact over 50,000 years prior. One local scientist on Fireball reflected on how Shiva's role as a god is to destroy the universe only for the sake of recreating it. She then points out that carbonaceous meteorites hold the fundamental building blocks for the creation of life, and that if Shiva were to take the form of an object, that a meteorite wouldn't be a bad choice. Because of the mysteries and abandoned temples at Lonar Lake, it still remains a site of religious pilgrimage. In the Final segment of Fireball, Herzog travels to the remote Pacific island of Myrrh, between Australia and Papua New Guinea in the Torres Strait, populated by the Miriam Myrrh people. The Miriam Myrrh have associated bright meteors that cross the sky above with some of their death rites and passages into new and different lives. This was first recorded by Europeans when they had traveled to the remote island over 150 years ago, and many of the Miriam Myrrh still have the same beliefs and rituals today. They may have been practicing these same beliefs for nearly three thousand years since their ancestors had first inhabited the island. In a world primarily dominated by sea and sky, it's not surprising that these people would pay closer attention to the sky than most, who are surrounded by woods and mountains. The Miriam Myrrh believe the souls of loved ones would 
catch a ride on a meteor shooting across the sky, traveling to their new life. Herzog documented a ritualistic celebratory dance where they clap burning stalks together to create embers, symbolizing the streak of light left behind by fireballs. Larger, brighter, and more viscerally impressive than a mere shooting star, it is this rare sight which Herzog's film is named for. As the Miriam Murr culture is beginning to be drawn into the globalized world around them, anthropologists have been attempting to document what remains of their culture and language before it goes extinct. The Miriam Murr are living relics, a glimpse into the reaction of how ancient people across the world may have interpreted the sudden balls of light that would appear in the sky, drawing the awe of observers and bringing time to a standstill before just as suddenly vanishing as if it never existed to begin with. If the mere observation of fireballs inspires deep religious beliefs, as they do with the Miriam Murr, and the impacts left behind draw the constructions of temples and religious pilgrimages, as they do at Lonar Lake, then it's worth speculating at how deep meteors have penetrated the human psyche of belief. It's possible that a meteorite could be the most sacred object embedded at the center of one of the world's largest religions. The Kaaba, the most sacred site in all of Islam, is the cloth-covered building that all Muslims pledge to visit at least once in their lifetime during their trip to Mecca so precious that any non-Muslims are prohibited from visiting. Located in the eastern corner of the Kaaba is a hole that pilgrims throng to reach their hands or heads into in order to get a glimpse or even briefly feel or kiss a literal touchstone to the Prophet Muhammad, the Black Stone. Believers are expected to make seven circuits around the Kaaba, and if they are unable to get close enough to touch or kiss the black stone, literally the most desired location to be in all of the Muslim world, then it is expected that they point to the black stone as they circle the Kaaba. In Islam, it is a very serious transgression to worship anything other than God, so much so that designs depicting animals and people are often shunned for fear that they will be falsely worshipped. Any Muslim knows that it is not the black stone that is worshipped, it is instead merely a venerated relic. But it is this relic that is the most fundamental object associated with worship in all of Islam's 1.8 billion followers. It is believed to have been handled not only by Muhammad himself, but even Abraham and Ishmael, who are well known in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The composition of the black stone is not known because cultural and religious restrictions surrounding the relic will not allow it to be tested. But the prevailing theory purports that it is a meteorite. Some sources report that 
Anthony Hampton from Oxford University, was able to study samples collected from the portal where the black stone is held and found iridium and minuscule shards of high-impact crystals, both telltale signs of meteorites. One paper by the Institute of Historical Geology and Paleontology at the University of Copenhagen attempts to put what is known about the Black Stone into context and comes to the conclusion that it is most likely a meteorite. The author notes that in 1932, that some impact craters were found over 600 miles away from Mecca. This led to the discovery of several iron meteorites in the area, as well as glass caused by the impact, which could be the source of the black stone. Samples collected from these sites do potentially match the varied descriptions of the black stone. What is known for certain is that the black stone predates Islam and was worshipped at the Kaaba by pagans in Mecca at the time of Muhammad's arrival, where he allowed the black stone to stay and kissed it which is what millions of Muslims that can get close enough to the stone mimic to this day. According to the Mohammedan tradition, the black stone was sent from heaven by God, and that this stone served as Adam's chair, giving it a connection to the origin of humanity. If the black stone is a meteorite, as a stone sent by heaven may suggest, then meteorites likely have played a powerful role in other ancient cultures as well. In the Bible, there is mention that Jacob laid his head on a Betel stone, which is a Hebrew word for meteorite. And it's also the same word used to describe the Black Stone. Chapter 12, Part 2 Heliopolis and the Benben, the Sky Stone of Antiquity. Meteorites have been revered since long before biblical times. One discovery in Egypt was a man buried 5,400 years ago wearing a necklace and belt made of gold, carnelian, and most surprisingly, iron. Around 3400 BCE was long enough ago that the Sahara still likely had a livable savanna, and Egypt was thousands of years out from reaching the Iron Age. It was clear that this man was an important person, because other rare objects such as an ivory pot a stone pallet, and a copper harpoon were found with his body. A closer inspection of the iron beads found them to be of extraterrestrial origin. The value of such a strong metal in an age where copper was still a rare possession would have been a true status symbol. Further evidence that ancient Egyptians revered meteorites comes from an iron dagger that was buried in King Tut's tomb over 800 years before Egyptians learned to smelt iron. To have an iron dagger in the Bronze Age would have been like having Valyrian steel in Game of Thrones, with only the most elite owning it. It has been 
convincingly argued that most iron objects of the time came from meteorites, as there was no way for Egyptians to have produced it on their own yet. But the question of whether the ancient Egyptians knew that this iron came from meteorites still remains. One piece of evidence that provides support for claiming Egyptians did know where their iron came from is a word for iron having a new name after the year 1295 BCE that translated to iron from the sky. If ancient Egyptians around this time witnessed a meteorite crash into Earth, they could have discovered that this rare, cherished iron came from the heavens. But with 3,000 years lying between then and now, it is possible this interpretation could be incorrect. Speculation about the Egyptian relationship to meteorites can run deep. There is a theory that meteorites were more than just fanciful decoration and may be at the core of the Egyptian culture. This theory connects to one of the oldest cities in Egypt that was nearly completely forgotten one that was likely formed during a time that the Sahara still had some life to it, and was the most important center for science and learning in antiquity. To the Greeks, it was called Heliopolis, the city of the sun, while the Egyptians called it Lunu or On, meaning pillar or the pillars. The Egyptian name comes from the belief that the hill, or pillar, that their city was built on was the origin for the entire creation of the world. Heliopolis existed for over 2,500 years before it was abandoned sometime around the 2nd century BCE. While the reason for it being abandoned is unknown, it may be related to attacks on Egypt in the previous two centuries by foreign enemies like the Persians. Heliopolis was so old that it was built as an original city of Egypt. It was both a spiritual and educational center which studied astronomy, geometry, medicine, history, religion, and philosophy. It is even mentioned several times in the Old Testament for its known grandeur. Heliopolis's high priest was titled Chief of Observers and the lower priests were responsible for upkeeping the calendars and called the keepers of time. Herodotus, the well-known historian, lived during the city's waning days and claimed that its priests were even the first to discover the length of the solar year. It is only those ancient Greeks who lived at the dawn of modern history that would have been able to visit this magnificent city of the ancient world before its destruction. It's claimed that Pythagoras and even Thales of Miletus had traveled to and learned within the walls of this old and brilliant city. Solon, Plato's teacher, has also been said to have visited Heliopolis, and many of Plato's teachings have been suggested to have Egyptian origin. 
It may well be no coincidence that the rise of Greek culture took place shortly after the fall of Heliopolis, and it was the outlanders who had visited the city before its demise that primarily benefited from the city's vast stores of knowledge in the areas of astronomy, mathematics, and philosophy. While the Egyptians may have been too busy struggling with their own political turmoil. Could the rise of ancient Greece be a direct result of the vacuum left behind by the fall of one of Egypt's most important cities? As this was at the cusp of recorded history, only tantalizing speculation provide ideas about the different relationships between the Greeks and Egyptians at this crucial time. It would only be a couple hundred years later that Alexander the Great would go on to conquer Egypt and start the beginning of modern Western civilization that still continues to this day. It is the city that he named for himself, Alexandria, that would go on to become the new Egyptian center of learning with its famous library and lighthouse, replacing Heliopolis's reputation so decidedly that the ancient city was nearly totally forgotten. It's quite possible that when Sausagines of Alexandria was searching for a calendar for the Roman emperor Julius Caesar, that he may have gotten it from Eratosthenes, as discussed in chapter 3. But as the chief librarian in early Alexandria, Eratosthenes may have been keenly aware about the learning that was lost from Heliopolis including the coveted knowledge of the length of the solar year, as hinted by Herodotus. While it is likely never to be confirmed, it may be that our modern calendar was a calendar used by the most scientifically advanced city of antiquity. Even Plato points out that the priests of Egypt had been observing the stars for 10,000 years, and Heliopolis would have been the center of such observations before its destruction. Today, in the growing suburbs of Cairo, little more than a giant, lonely obelisk, the oldest in existence, remains as a reminder that this once great city was here. Cairo is young for Egypt, barely over a thousand years old, but it was built with the very limestone that once made up Heliopolis. By the age of the Romans, almost nothing remained of this city that also doubled as a temple. Flooding from the nearby Nile and farms continued to bury sections of this ancient city. The great obelisks were dismantled and brought to far-flung corners of the world, including Rome, London, and New York. Subsequent empires saw the grandeur of this ancient city and took pieces of it to adorn their own. Most went to decorate the Parthenon in Rome, or the Temple of Isis, and to this day, Italy still holds most of the obelisks of Heliopolis. Another was taken from Heliopolis by Egyptians to be put in Alexandria but was only then later removed again to London during the reign of the British Empire. Three years after Britain received their obelisk of Heliopolis, 
Egypt gifted one to the United States for helping build the Suez Canal, a prelude to the world's next reigning empire. Garbage dumps, along with home and commercial construction, has threatened what few remains of the city still exist buried beneath the surface, and significant efforts have gone into excavating and documenting what remains before Heliopolis is gone for good. What has been recovered is the foundation of the largest temple in all of Egypt, along with the remains of giant stone statues that weigh in the tons. It was aptly named by the Greeks for being the city of the sun. University of Leipzig's Egyptian museum curator Dietrich Rouet said about Heliopolis that, quote, You can compare it to the very center of Vatican City. Everyone inside the city was somehow connected to the sun cult or temple. End quote. Heliopolis was so striking in the burgeoning Middle East and Europe that it served as the model for other temples across the region during antiquity. But today, even with the recovery efforts, still very little is known about Heliopolis. University of London's Petrie Museum head Stephen Quirk stated, quote, It's extraordinary that one of the most famous cities of the ancient world is now a ghost of a name. It's a black hole in our knowledge of ancient Egypt. Heliopolis is the great site, end quote. What we do know is that the city of Heliopolis was dedicated to the Egyptian god Ra, whose piercing eye was believed to be that of the sun. While there were competing mythologies within the boundaries of Egypt, Heliopolis's power helped their version of mythology become the dominant narrative. All gods and creatures dealing with light, fire, and the sun were associated with Heliopolis, including Autumn, who was worshipped within the walls of Heliopolis before Ra, as well as the Banu bird, which is likely the inspiration for the westernized concept of the phoenix. Both the Bennu bird and the phoenix are birds of the sun that are autonomously born from their own ashes and die in a burst of flames, only to repeat the process through rebirth. These beliefs go back to long before there was a unifying pharaoh of Egypt and it is likely that these beliefs unified the people of Egypt before any single person did. Heliopolis speaks to a people who extolled the virtue of the most prominent celestial object in the heavens, its mysterious power, and the secrets it could reveal. Therefore, the most sacred place one could visit in ancient Egypt for the majority of its 2,500-plus-year history is the Great Sun Temple of Heliopolis. The Great Sun Temple was not a building, but instead it was an entire portion of the city likely with many buildings of worship found within. While the Vatican within Rome might be the best comparison, 
It's unlikely that we'll fully comprehend what it was like as so much of it was destroyed. An entire section of the city to pay homage to the sun in its myriad of ways. Within the Great Sun Temple of Heliopolis was a building that does not seem to go by just one name. It has been called the Mansion of the Bennu Bird, or the Mansion of the Phoenix, and sometimes it is known as the House of Ra. Others still say it was a temple dedicated to autumn, which was essentially Ra's predecessor, and may very well have been the same god by a different name, with a morphed mythology, just as how Zeus and Jupiter have slightly different mythologies but are essentially the same god. This building could have been called by all of these titles, but whatever its name, it was likely the most prominent building in the entire temple city. The Bennu bird runs deep in Egyptian mythology and is most often associated with the powerful gods of autumn, Ra and Osiris. The lone remaining obelisk that stands as a sole reminder that Heliopolis existed today is claimed to have been one of several that stood outside of this great lost building. Inside of this great mansion that all of ancient Egypt revolved around for thousands of years was one object that was more important than anything else found inside, the Benben Stone. This gave the prominent building it was housed in one other nickname, the House of the Benben. The Benben Stone is associated with autumn because in multiple versions of their creation myth, the hill that autumn built the entire world on was the Benben Stone itself. And it is on this Benben Stone that the Bennu bird was said to live. Theoretically, a visitor to the most sacred city in Egypt could have entered the most sacred temple in this city and walk into the most sacred building of this temple and find in the innermost chamber the very piece of rock that was claimed to be the origin of all existence laying there in such a way to be hit by the first rays of sunlight each morning. Of course, this should all be qualified on whether a foreign visitor would have been allowed access into the temple, whether or not some other unknown temple was more prominent than this House of Ra, and whether the Benben stone was really even exposed to the first rays of light each morning, because the hard evidence of what actually happened has long been lost. The Benben stone was far more than merely the stone that was the foundation for the creation of the earth it became the most venerated object in all of antiquity and was repeatedly featured in hieroglyphics and other ancient texts. It was said that the Benben stone could grant divine visions and that if guidance from one of the stone's priest caretakers went ignored, it could drive the seeker of its wisdom mad. Depictions of the Benben were recorded in a variety of ways and was often described as a conical rock, basically looking like a miniature pyramid. 
due to this shape, it's believed that the Ben Ben Stone may have possibly even inspired the creation of the pyramids themselves. As Egypt unified under a common mythology where the Ben Ben Stone was its most sacred object and pharaohs came to dominate the length of the Nile, they may also have wanted to be buried in the likeness of such a sacred stone. But the motivations and inspirations for the pyramids are not well known, and therefore may have no connection to the Ben-Ben stone at all. Regardless, the word Ben-Ben took on a more colloquial term in the wake of the stone's fame. That means the capstone to any pyramid or obelisk. So it may very well be that the tops of the obelisks of Heliopolis were constructed in the likeness of the Ben-Ben stone. Ben-Ben stones from pyramids have been preserved and kept, as each of these capstones were said to be modeled in the likeness of the original. One author who has spent a lot of time researching ancient civilizations is Andrew Collins, and in one of his books, he writes about the pharaoh Akhenaten's obsession with the Ben-Ben stone. Living around 1300 BCE, Akhenaten believed the Ben-Ben stone gave him visions that Egypt needed to be a monotheistic state. During his reign, he insisted that depictions and replicas of the Ben-Ben stone be in every new temple he created. Akhenaten was a controversial figure in his day, and when he died, the priesthood denounced his followers as heretics and they were banished from Egypt. In 1939, Sigmund Freud theorized that this banished group was led by the biblical Moses, which controversially implied that Moses and his followers would have been Egyptian rather than Hebrew in origin. Could the Ben-Ben Stone have been the catalyst for a failed monotheistic movement in Egypt that led to the banishment of a fervent group who also believed in the cause of worshipping a single god that led to the foundation of the Abrahamic religions? Once again, Freud offered up some speculation. But the reality is that we will never truly know how deeply ancient Egyptian culture is rooted in our modern beliefs. So, whatever happened to the Ben-Ben Stone? No one really knows, much in the same way that no one really knows what happened to Heliopolis as a whole. The city certainly had been under siege from nearby Mesopotamia multiple times during its millennia-long existence. Many city-states from this lost era would hold sacred relics at the heart of their city temples, a symbol representing the city's power and strength. Could Syrians or Persians have made it into the city and taken the mystical Ben-Ben? Separated from its core of followers, it may have laid in a vault somewhere for centuries, only to be discovered by some new band of raiders that found it too cumbersome to keep, and, seeing it no more than the rock that it was, discarded it. Could it have fallen into the hands of one of the pagans of Arabia before Muhammad arrived and kissed it, turning it into the Black Stone of Islam, its origins forgotten? 
The mind can run wild with speculation when the evidence is lost. Due to the fascination of the Ben-Ben Stone, it has led many scholars to ask the question of whether this sacred stone was a meteorite. With its origin and subsequent disappearance shrouded in mystery, and with no actual samples to go by, the only conclusion that we can definitely come to is that we will never know. However, there are some enticing clues that have led scholars to strongly believe that the Ben-Ben Stone was likely a meteorite, and they begin with its shape. The conical shape characteristic of the Ben-Ben Stone is unusual to happen with a more natural geological process. Even if a stone, for example, was found along a river and had a rough shape of a pyramid, it still would be unlikely to be enough of a draw to pull an entire mythology around it. In 2019, an article came out demonstrating that due to fluid mechanics, which is based on the science of physics, Cones are one of the more common shapes that meteorites take. The reason for this is because pieces of rock that are too thin or too wide will tumble and flutter more as they fall, making it more likely to burn up completely or to break apart into pieces. But space rocks that have a more cone-like shape will plummet right to the ground with a greater likelihood to stay intact. The command modules of the Apollo missions were designed in a similar fashion for return trips to Earth after visiting the moon. This conical shape is found within about 25 to 35 percent of all meteorites that have been collected, making this shape relatively common for the uncommon stone. Another reason to speculate that the Ben-Ben stone was a meteorite is the telling fact that the pyramids were completely celestial in their nature. Cambridge University's Toby Wilkinson is an Egyptologist who has spent time understanding the pyramids' connections to the heavens. The Bennu bird was a symbol that death was seen as the beginning of a new journey a new life beyond the current one. Pyramids were always oriented towards Thuban, which was their pole star at the time, and names of pyramids were often celestial in nature, such as the gleaming or the pyramid that is a star. And when a king or pharaoh wanted a pyramid, they founded estates to finance them, one of which was called The King Rises as a Star. Wilkinson points out that the ancient Egyptians wouldn't know what the shape of a star was, but that they would know the shape of something that fell from the sky leaving a bright trail of fire in its wake that could only, in their minds, come from a star. If they collected one and it happened to be in the famed conical shape of the Ben-Ben Stone, then pyramids may be symbolic of what Egyptians believed stars to look like. Robert Baval is a writer who has been fascinated with Egypt's connections to the stars. 
And in 1990, he wrote a piece in the journal Discussions in Egyptology on whether the Benben Stone could have been a meteorite. Baval focused on the process of what happens to a king once he had died, and notes that they are transfigured into a star soul, and that as Egyptian belief evolved, the pyramids themselves were representations of this transfiguration of a dead king into a living star. He quotes a pyramid text, which mentions the sky goddess Newt, stating, quote, O king, Newt carries you for herself to the sky. Newt, you may bring the sky to the king and hang up the stars for him. End quote. With this discovery, Baval believes that the Benben may have been a meteorite, a conclusion he came to even before Wilkinson. But Baval does not have the same credentials as Wilkinson. And Wilkinson is the greater professional here who acknowledges that his theory is, quote, deliberately controversial, provocative, but tantalizing, end quote. Baval is also more famously known for claiming that the pyramids of Giza were intentionally aligned in the same way as the belt of Orion. Some astronomers have come out to criticize this assertion by Baval and have done measurements to show that the alignment, while close, is not precise. The astronomers have asserted that Baval's theory is a form of pseudo-archaeology and stress the importance that we shouldn't see merely what we hope to see. And this is priceless advice when you begin to venture down the rabbit hole of the Egyptians and their relationship to the cosmos. The Benben Stone can seem almost like a precursor to Islam's Black Stone, and how fascinating it is to speculate that these two distant and powerful religions may both hold a meteorite at the center of their beliefs. Yet, it's also just as possible that neither of them ever did. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and 
you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.